welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. I wasn't supposed to preach today. Um, I wasn't planning on preaching. Most pastors are taking like weeks off leading up to Easter. And this particular Easter, I'm co-teaching with one of the lead pastors of Grace. So that's going to be fun and interesting. Um, But I wasn't planning on preaching today because, well, uh, we haven't seen Pastor Bill in a while. And I was excited to have a Sunday off from preaching. But as we've headed into the week, um, this last week, I had lots of people ask me, are you going to preach again? And I was like, why? They're like, I just feel like you should preach based off of what happened last Sunday. And I was feeling that sense, and I was trying to discern, well, is it, is it okay just to keep going, or should we pause and do like a follow-up to the conversation? And as we were discerning it as a team, it was like, yeah, we should just do a follow-up from this last Sunday. So I w- you know, we were going to jump back into our series, but um, we're going to do part two of the Joshua talk. So if you missed last week, you're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff. But don't worry, I've got cliff notes. But I need, to, I, I need to let you know, something happened last Sunday. Oh, so if you missed it, sorry. Some of you are like, what happened? I was here. I didn't notice. I'm sorry for you as well. <clears throat> Maybe today the, you'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. We talked about how there are times when God speaks in our community, and there's something called prophetic words, and oftentimes most of us have been trained in a culture and context where we only understand teaching. And yeah, prophets can teach, apostles, evangelists, and shepherds can teach, um, but, but oftentimes when a word is given that's prophetic, we don't have a lens to receive the prophecy because we only see it as teaching. And if you only have the, the ability to see something as a, a teaching gift, well, you'll only go so far in the kingdom. This is why Jesus says, if you receive a prophet in the prophet's name, you'll receive a prophet's reward. You gain access to the ministry, to the life of the prophet or the word, and you gain access to that ministry. If you receive a righteous person in the name of a righteous person, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, in the kingdom of God, your capacity to see what's going on underneath the surface, behind what you've learned from the world, if you learn to have kingdom eyes, you gain more access, more fruit. I believe that with all my heart. This is why, by the way, When Jesus goes to his hometown, he's dishonored. And when he's dishonored, the flow of heaven is cut off to his hometown. He can only do a couple of miracles, it says. Even a couple. We'd be like, yeah! But it's the Gentiles. It's the sinners. It's the tax collectors. It's the people who shouldn't get Jesus. They see him as Lord, and they receive his full ministry. And I just think the church today, we have settled for powerlessness. We've settled for good content rather than transformation. And I just want to say, transformation, I'm sorry, content will not transform your life. Content will not transform. And we love content today. We absorb content like plants absorb the sun. We absorb the Netflix shows. We absorb the podcasts on our drives. We absorb the media in the background, the music, the albums. We are absorbing so much content, but how many of us have become the kind of person where streams of living water are flowing through us? 
This is what I want more than anything. I, this is why we interrupt this program. Because I am I'm now convinced in a world filled with information and content, we need God's presence. And we as a community need to learn how to host his presence. You as a disciple of Jesus need to learn how to host his presence, to welcome his presence in your life and not settle for spiritual disciplines. That, that, that's important. But pursue union with Christ. How are we doing? Are we Okay. I didn't write an intro. In my notes, it says write an intro. Um, (laughs) Last week, I brought a word from Joshua chapter 3. And I had three points. And I want to stay on on a point, point number two today. But Joshua 3, I'm going to read it. It says this, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people and then he said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And I read the rest of it, or I summarized the rest of the chapter, but I had three points. Number one, um, what, when God, the question I asked was, how do we prepare for God's new thing? How do we, as the people of God, prepare for his new thing? And look, I know some of you are here, and you're just thirsty. You're like dehydrated, and you need like new mineral, you need electrolyte water to like fill you up, because life has been so hard, and the idea of something new is exhausting and scary, and I get that, but I want to tell you right now that God is doing something, and he's about to do something. You can feel this, this um, like there's, there's a pregnancy in our church, and like you don't have to Ask the question when somebody's pregnant. Like when they're about to give birth, you know. Like they're waddling. Like you know by how they walk and how they get up and how they're holding themselves. And like there's this thing that's about to happen. You don't need to, you don't, you know. That's what's happening right now in our church. But most of us aren't aware because we miss the service. We miss the prayer meetings. We're not in house churches. We don't see the miracles. Our kids our fourth and fifth graders are seeing miracles and we think, oh, that's cool, good story. No, we need to pause and give glory and honor to God because something's happening and you're going to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. I've missed it in my life. I've missed it when God moves and I didn't give glory and honor to God. When God healed someone of cancer and it wasn't pause, let's throw a festival because this one person was healed. When I, I, right now, there is a renewal happening. It's happening in individuals. It's happening in families. It's happening in pockets of our house churches. It's happening on Tuesday morning prayer. There's something happening. And I'm not, I'm not like trying to broadcast. We can't broadcast it. We got off social media for this reason. This is why. We were listening to the Lord. We felt like he was saying, I'm going to do something this year, and you have to be away from the world. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in the hidden place in your community. And I'm not, you're not going to be able to broadcast. Yeah, we're YouTubing, but compared to Instagram where we broadcast everything, there's something happening. And when God's going to do something new, he almost always prepares the people. He whispers it to leaders. He whispers it to people who are hungry. And he begins to disclose to them his marvelous plans. 
And it's almost too big to be true. They couldn't believe it. Like Noah, he comes to Noah and he's like, hey, it's going to rain and it's going to rain a lot. You need to build a boat and you're going to spend your entire life building a boat and everyone's going to say you're crazy until it starts raining. Some of you have felt like Noah. You've lived with these ideas and these dreams and these longings in your hearts and this prayer life that has been frustrating yet divine and God has been preparing you in advance for the things that are coming. Some of you have been here praying for 20-something, 30-something years and the things that you've been praying for, we are about to walk in in the inheritance. These are not empty words. I'm not trying to hype anything. I'm telling you what's being disclosed. For years, when I, when I felt called into ministry, I had no idea what God was saying, except I knew I would be a part of something significant and big. Not that I would have any, any part of making it that way, but that I would watch God do something. I didn't come to build a little church. I came to see a city renewed. I didn't have vision for a church. I had a vision for a city. This is what we need. We need to understand that what we steward right now in the earthly realm will, will have a direct results for eternal life. Again, some of you are like, man, I just need to eat some food after this. This is so weird. And I get it. Some of you don't have eyes to see. Ask the Lord to give you eyes right now. When God prepares Israel for inheritance, he promised the inheritance about 500 years before they set foot in the promised land. And when, they, when he finally gives them the promised land, they have to fight for every inch of that promised land. It's not like what you think fighting. Some of the fighting will be marching around a fortified city for seven days and their fight finally breaks out and they shout and they worship God and then the walls come tumbling down. That's how God prepares his people. But he did it in advance for 40 years in the wilderness. He was preparing them to be obedient, to listen to his word, to not worry about the things of this world, to not be uh, distracted by the abundance of the promise, but to live by the obedience by the fresh manna, by the word of God. That's what he does. And right now, in this renewal, he does the first thing he does in point number one is he disrupts our comforts so we could reestablish our convictions. Because micro comforts left unchecked leads to macro compromise. And so point number two last week is that we need to repent from compromise and pursue consecration, which I'm going I'm to camp there in a second. But the third point I made last week, and you should listen to it, is that the people of God, we need to learn to uh, obey God's word and follow his presence with renewed faith. Because God begins to shake things up. And what happens is comfort leads us to compromise, and compromise leads us to disobedience, and disobedience leads us to a passive faith or apathy. I want to, we had a leadership community last week, which was interesting to say the least if you were here. It was good and it was awkward and it was weird, but that messiness tends to happen when you let the Lord disrupt your plans. It's not neat and tidy. How many of you heard us say this? It's neat and tidy in the graveyard, but it's messy in the nursery. People will, will say, um, you know, I've heard it said, I think it's from Dennis Bennett, one of the guys who brought, saw revival in the, uh, the Anglican church, the Episcopalian church back in the 60s or 70s. And he says, it's better to have a little bit of wildfire than no fire at all. 
And so many of us, we've confused fire of God with emotions or the fire of God with hype or the fire of God with warm fuzzies. And we have to learn to discern the presence of God and learn to be comfortable. And, and I, I'm learning and I'm realizing that it's, it's, it's very costly to give up control. How many of you want to say amen? amen. Um, and if you want to be used by the Spirit, you have to give up control. Now, I recognize, I, f- I can sense it. There's an inner battle for some of you because you're like, what is he getting at? And the inner battle is, I want you to be fully surrendered to Jesus. And everything in your life is going to keep you from fully surrendering. The way you've done it, your personality type, um, your relationships, your comforts, your, uh, your tradition or doing things the way you've always done it, your fear will keep you from being totally centered. Sin will keep you from this. So I, I really believe God is doing something new. And, and the point I want to focus on is this idea that came out in our, our service in our leadership community after last week. Are you guys okay? Are we good? It's 1113. I know it's, you're like, okay, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you what I prepared um, this week. And as I was praying, I felt like this is the direction I wanted to go. I'm on half a page of my notes. So good Lord, get me through this. Or just, um, Jesus, take the wheel. Um, We repent from compromise, and we pursue consecration. I shared this last week, and then I I tried to explain what I meant, but I realized that there are words I'm using that are very biblical, very even traditional Christianity. And for so many of us, we have no idea what this even means. So I wanted to give you a glossary, a, a definition of terms, if you will. So first of all, to consecrate means to make holy or to set something apart for sacred use. And the idea is that the people of God were to be holy. They were to be set apart from the world and the way the world lives and operates for the sake of being set apart for God's purposes. So this idea is that there are things in the world that if you just left to your default settings, you're going to go with the culture of the world. You're going to gossip because it's so easy to gossip. You're going to slander people. You're going to hold on to unforgiveness because somebody offended you and the world teaches you to get back at them, eye for an eye. We're going to get them back. If you don't like some powerful institution, you're going to protest on Twitter and Instagram. This is what the world teaches us. This is how we bring, quote unquote, change through posting our virtues online. Consecration is to say, I'm not going to go with the cultural flow. I'm not going to live like the rest of the world because I think I've been set apart for something far more significant. And that significance has a legacy and that legacy goes for eternity. So the decisions I make, which may feel like restrictions or limitations, actually lead you to abundance. And we're going to talk about what that means. The second thing is to repent. Repent is um, to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about wrongdoing or sin. And in the, the Greek, it means to change one's mind. In Hebrew, it means to change directions, to turn away, to turn around. Repentance is active. It's intentional. It requires a positional change, a perspective change. Um, repentance often leads to, I'm sorry, it's not just a public declaration. I want to 
I really need to like dis- discern this because I was thinking about what happened in last, last week and I was thinking, I don't know if we fully understand what repentance is anymore. I really don't think we, we've taught, we, I haven't taught this very well, I think, because I was listening last week and I'm realizing, no, 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 um, in our culture, what we do is we, we will share things out loud with transparency because our culture, um, we confuse vulnerability with transparency and we think it's authenticity when we just disclose our self-critique or a critique of others. So we broadcast, like, what I mean is we'll say, well, you know, I've, do- I've done this thing. Repentance is, I've done this thing. It's wrong. It's sin. And it's not, if, I, if it's to another person, it's not first sin to that person. It's first sin to God. Repentance is this remorse. I've, uh, I've missed the mark. The word sin means to miss the mark. The word compromise means to accept the standards that are lower than is desirable. In other words, when we compromise, we're living outside of God's desire for us. Remember last week, what I said is, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what we want to focus on is, man, yes, I've messed up. I've sinned. Hold on. Paul says, you were made for glory. You were made for glory. You were made for significance. You were made for partnership in the renewal of all things. You were made to reign with Christ as co-heirs. You were made to live in perfect loving relationship with God, with your true self, with each other and all of creation. Bill and other theologians have taught that when Jesus calms the storm, he's taking the right authority back over creation. And it seems like Adam and Eve might have had the power to say, hey, Rain, we need some of your support over in this region over here as we grow the Garden of Eden. We had that kind of authority in Genesis 1 or 2. I know that's tripping you out. You're like, what do you mean? Yep. You were made to cultivate environments for all of creation to flourish. Anything outside of that is sin. Are you with me? It's a big deal. It's, uh, yeah, we're like, okay, this is cool. This is great. I love it. But what I'm realizing is that <clears throat> what we've done is we, in our culture, or maybe in our Christian culture, we've just tried to, we've dismissed the significance of sin. Maybe it's just me. In my attempt to make sure you understand that there's this religious way that we try to avoid, we, we haven't given full due to the cross. Today's Palm Sunday. Today's the day in the church calendar that we recognize that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the the crowd said, Hosanna. They laid down palm leaves, which was a symbolic thing that took place throughout the intertestament period that when messianic figures, because there were messianic figures before the time of Jesus that came. And there was a thing that they did, every one of them. They would go, they would come in, most of them in military gear. They would lay down palms, symbolizing the coming of of the Messiah and the king. And then they would go straight to the temple and sometimes kick out, take down the idols of the temple and defeat the occupying emperors or empires that were there. And Jesus does... A similar thing. He goes in and instead of kicking out the Romans, he he kicks out the money changers. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what we're saying. The, the, this is the problem, though. So all the crowds, they begin to turn on him, right? Because they're like, no, 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 no. The guy with the, 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 guy with the, the, the you know, the, the, the sword, that's the guy you need to kick out. Not this stuff. He's like, no, my house will be a house of prayer. And, and then all week long, Jesus doesn't meet their expectation to the point where, the, you know, within five days, Hosanna, we come, we want you to be king. Crucify him. We do the same thing today. We do the same thing because he wouldn't meet our expectations. He would offend us. So today is Palm Sunday, and I want to just stay on this for just a couple more minutes. Um, still on page number one. Um, I want to give you a theological detour for sin and holiness. Okay, this is Darren's theological detour on holiness and sin. Um, <laughs> go to Romans chapter 6. Because I want to just, I want to show you a New Testament mindset of sin and holiness. And then I want to invite you into taking action to repent and confess your sins. Okay, so we're just going to spend a couple of minutes. I want to read Romans 6 because this is such an important book, but it's an important way to understand who you are. So this is, for those that are in Christ Jesus, Paul is referring to, um, to the church, those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I'm, I'm going to make the distinguishing um, perspective because if you don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life, then you stand condemned. You stand enslaved. You stand um, uh, under the powers of darkness, under their authority. But when you accept Jesus and you stay, say yes to Christ and you abandon all their forms of ways of saving yourself, you are now given a new identity. You're given life. You're, you go from death to life. You go from enslaved to being set free. You stand being condemned to being forgiven and released. That is what we declare as, as Christians. And Paul's going to take this theological detour in Romans as he's, he's doing this, this argument. And it says, and he just finished, hold on, um, sorry, I, I, one of my, my mentors is Don Williams, he's 86, and, um, and he's a theologian and a teacher of scriptures, and he was an expert in Paul, and I, I couldn't help but have to remind you of this, but right before Romans 6, Paul just makes this big case for this idea that, look, whenever there's sin, because of the cross and because of Jesus, grace increases, so he's making this case like, hey, the law, this, but hey, every time there's sin, you know, grace abounds, grace increases over sin. So then logically, he, he makes that next connection in Romans 6. So he says, this is his logic. He goes, well, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Like this is where we go, if we're already going to be saved and we're filled with grace, let's just keep on living our lives. Like that's the logical conclusion, right? As Christians, there's nothing we can do to earn more of God's love. I can just keep on living in sin and it's okay. Grace will abound. Yes, that's true. But then Paul makes this case. Listen to this. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. Okay, I want you to hear this word. I need you to hear this word. I need you to hear this word. I'm not, I need you to hear it here. By no means, we in Christ are those who have past tense died to sin. How can we then live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, 
we will certainly also be united with him in the, in the resurrection like this. Come on. Come on, Romans 6, he's saying, look, here's what's happened. Um, your, your life, you died with Jesus on the cross. If you've confessed Jesus and you've been baptized, by the way, in the New Testament, there's no evidence where you say yes to Jesus in a prayer and don't get baptized. So if you're a Christian, water baptism is part of your journey. It is a symbolic demonstration of this exact thing, a deep, rich theology that when you come to faith, you come to faith in the symbol of dying with Jesus on the cross. When you go underwater, you're buried with him in the grave and you come out symbolically recognizing that you will rise with him in the resurrection once and for all. Is that good news? Past tense. You and your old life has been dead. It's past tense. Just as sin came through Adam, life and gra- uh, comes through Jesus. And here's the point that he makes. I'm just going to summarize this text quickly. What is true of Jesus is true of us. That's crazy. Christ died, buried, and resurrected. Therefore, we died. We've been buried, and we will be resurrected. Is that good news? Okay, stay with me. I'm talking about sin and holiness. And how do we live now and pursue holiness? How do we get rid of sin, and how do we deal with sin in this New Testament theology? That's what I'm trying to get at, all right? I don't want you thinking that Darren's talking about becoming more holy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about a works of righteousness. I'm not talking about uh, a legalism. I'm not talking about performance. I'm talking about a New Testament understanding of sin and holiness. Here we go. Verse 6. I'm taking this off. It's too hot. Um, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives for God. Okay, I want to look at this phrase, the old self, in just a second. So Paul takes this idea, this old self, and he, he filters it through a grid. And, and it basically, it applies to this entire way of living, an entire way of thinking, an entire way of, of your thoughts, your life, your actions, your sin, your, all before you accepted Christ. So think about the, the worst things you've ever done in the world. All of that was crucified with Christ on the cross. Your old self, past tense, was crucified. And I just want to remind you of what crucifixion is. It is the most technologically advanced way to keep someone alive as long as possible as you kill them. It, is, it was the most brutal death you could ever experience. The Romans invented a way of humiliating their, uh, the people they conquered, and it was a symbol of the worst thing humanity, the worst thing anyone could go through as they die. And that, that all that junk you came in with That's what happened to it. Is that good news? Oh, I'm going to preach it. This is such good news. All that old way. Let me just, okay, so let me just say to the cross. So the cross, three things happened on the cross. Are we good in the back? You in the back. I hear them. Are you guys good? Okay. I know it's hot. Don't worry. Um... 
it's hotter in hell. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's it. I'm getting ready. Okay. You're kind of, are you going to play the music? Worship team's going to come. I'm going. I'll see you later. All right. So sin, that's what's still on the cross. Jesus became our, the atoning sacrifice of our sin. Once and for all, the perfect spotless lamb defeats sin. The second thing he defeats on the cross through self-giving sacrifice is the enemy. He defeats the devil. Devil or the enemy was given the authority over creation. Adam and Eve were given that. And then when they sinned, they handed it over to Satan. So Satan ruled creation. That's, this is the story of the Old Testament to the New. And Jesus takes back what's rightfully ours and gives it back to us in, 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 in the end of Matthew's gospel. All authority has been given to me. Now go make disciples. So, so he defeats the enemy, um, Satan, and he defeats sin. And the third thing he conquers is the greatest tyrant of them all to God's perfect beauty beautiful creation, death. In one moment, God redeems all that was taken away, death, sin, and the devil. That's why when, when we announce the kingdom, God's reign, the kingdom cross fits perfectly at the center because through self-sacrificial love on the cross, Jesus does away with all the enemies of God in one moment and takes it back in its rightful place and then passes it on to us. But our old self, that old way of thinking, all of that's been crucified. Sin no longer dominates us. Nothing has power over us except the power we give it. And that's the problem where we live today as Christians because so many of us are living in shame. Guilt, I did something wrong. Shame, I am wrong. And we walk around with anemic prayers because we don't think God sees what's already been done by his son and now sees the righteousness that I'm walking in, sees the holiness that I'm clothed in, sees the power waiting to be released because we sit stumbling over and over again, stuck by the old self. What do we do? What do we do? How do we move forward? Let me just say this real quick because I love focusing on the cross as we head into Easter. A couple more minutes and we'll be done. Jesus on the cross is the greatest revelation of what God looks like. I want, I, we need to understand that the image of the cross is the, the epitome of the greatest revelation of God. So some of us get confused by the Old Testament. I understand that. The Old Testament's pointing to Jesus. And then when we get to Jesus, we see his life and ministry, and we see a better, and we teach, and we see a better image of what God's like. He's like the running father who receives his prodigal son and said, my boy's home. He's like the father who's a shepherd who goes after the one lost and lonely sheep. Uh, he comes to save uh, tax collectors and sinners and the prostitutes, because that's the image of God. They, too, are included. They, too, are children of Abraham. This is the image of Christ. This is the beautiful God. But when we get to, when we get to the cross, it's, it's the epic climax. What is God like? He is like a servant king who takes on all of our brokenness and wrongdoings and says, I can take that off from you so that you will never have to do it on your own. So well, I love what Gregory Boyd says. He's, he says, Jesus is what God looks like when there are no clouds in the way. Or I like this one from A.M. Ramsey. God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Now, I know this is for some of you. You need to hear this because you're filtering the wrong God in your head. You have a distorted view of God, and God always looks like Jesus. And then it ends with this in this Romans, and then we'll go to the end. Um, 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. So what do we do now that sin's been dead? Don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul will do this over and over again. When he writes a letter, he does two things, the indicative and the imperative. This is what God has done, and this is our response in view of what God has done. And this is so important because every other religion is this is what you do to get better better. This is what you, how you climb to reach heaven. This is the path you have to run in order to reach nirvana. Christianity is God's done everything, receive it. God's done everything, respond and live out of it. So what I'm, what I need you to see is that in the new Testament, holiness is this, you are holy period, full stop. Now be holy. You are already righteous. So be righteous, act accordingly. Become who you already are. This is your identity. You are more than a conqueror. You are full of life. You have been set free. The sin that's ruling you, you've given power over. You need to be, um, in Galatians, there'll be a passage where Paul basically said, uh, sin, uh, it, it has been crucified. So what's our response? Keep on crucifying it. Or here's the New Testament theology of sin. Sin is dead, so kill it. Stay with me on this. This is, this is where we're getting at it with holiness. Sin is dead. It's been brutally killed on the cross, your old self. Now, what do you do in view of this? Keep on killing and crucifying the sin so that your bodies are offered as instruments of righteousness to God. Romans, Romans will transition in tw- uh, verse 12, and he says, in view of all that God, in view of all of God's mercy, in view of everything he's done, the only fitting response is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What do you do when you realize that everything's been given to you? You turn away. You say thank you, and you keep living in the direction he's left you in. How are we doing? So, So let me just say this. If you're new to the church and you're new to faith, I need you to camp out on this idea. This is where you live for the next season. I need you to camp out on the fact that God has set you apart. If you say yes to Jesus today or or last week or last year, you need to live in this new identity that you have been set free, you've been called, you've been sanctified, you are holy, you are a saint, you have been power washed from the inside out, you are more than a conqueror, you are his beloved. Can you just say thank you and live in that, live in that belovedness for no good reason, sit down in that belovedness, and when you hear me talk what's what's coming next, you just put on your earmuffs, okay? This is not for you. If you're new follower of Jesus, just sit in that identity. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've been following Jesus for a while, what do we do now? Well, let me say this. We have compromised the Christian lifestyle. There is a global tragedy in the Western church where leaders are falling and massive institutions are dissipating because of the failure to build churches and ministries on the character of Christ. We are celebrating numbers and venues, and we're not celebrating the character that Christ requires. In other words, we justify the means for the ends. That has to end. 
It has, it has to end. We can't support toxic leadership. We can't empower immorality. We can't empower systems that create toxic leadership anymore in the church. And now what we want to do is deconstruct. And I understand why we want to do this. Because we've been hurt. And so we want to deconstruct the church and avoid it. But I said last week, I'm okay with deconstruction as long as you buckle up in those pews and you burn everything down, sitting until there's ashes and then rebuilding that community. Because there is, there is no plan B. Church is plan A. No matter how corrupt it's been throughout the past, we're waiting for a move where revival will break out and a new thing will happen. And we are part of the solution because we didn't say we're going to justify the means. No, the way we do something is just important as how and what we say. We can't sell Jesus truth and not leave the Jesus way, live the Jesus way. And we have sold Jesus truth for the sake of success while the way of Jesus is pushed off into the margin. So we burn out, we, go, we, over, we, we, we have sexual relationships outside of marriage, we are filled with lust and greed and envy, and we're all about power, and we deny that those things matter because God's, look at all that God's doing in the thing. That has to stop. We have to be consecrated. And this is what I think the Lord is after. I've been bringing to our leaders in the beginning of the year um, we've been doing these leadership communities because I've said what the Lord requires of us is consecrated leadership. Consecrated leadership. And, and I, this is a vague term. I'm making it up. <laughs> and as I've been discerning what the Lord is saying, he's been speaking to us for years about this, but I haven't had the courage to say, no, no, no. Our leaders must live generously, 10% minimum to the church. They must live with freedom. They have no addiction for a year. And our leaders must live out these four characteristics, which I want to explain. Because I think this is what I couldn't get to at the leadership community. I couldn't get to this last week, and we're at the risk of time. I couldn't get to this. But I want to say, I believe God's calling us into a season of consecration. There's four areas I want to focus on. Number one is hunger. God wants us to be hungry for his presence. He doesn't want you to be hungry for content. He doesn't want you to be hungry for the next cool pastor, the next good worship album, or whatever it is that you, you get excited about, the next Zillow research, Pinterest. He wants you to be hungry for his presence. And in, this, in the natural world, all we have to do to get hungry is not eat, right? And you get hungry. Everyone agree? In the supernatural world, the way we get hungry is by consuming God, God, his, his word and his presence, by eating. The more you eat the word, I mean that, like meditate, read, the, m- the more hunger that gets put into your life. So we need to be totally dependent, and God's going to increase his presence in our church. So the second thing is humble. We need to have um, a humility and leadership, because I think this is the true obstacle. Um, humility is defined as a modest or low view of one's self-importance, but um, it's also defined as a freedom of, from pride or arrogance. Tim Keller calls it, I love this, self-forgetfulness. Um, but I call humility as an accurate view of self, um, that we are both, both made of dust and the breath of life, that we are co-heirs with Christ, but we are saved by grace. And this is the tension we live in. We need to live with humility. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, that's the image of humility. The third is healthy, and this is really important. Lean in for this one. I think that the next leader of the church has to live from a holistic uh, sense of self, and that they have to be holistic souls. 
that see health in every dimension of their soul. And we've done so much work to talk about soul care here. That holistic health means you're spiritually healthy, yes, but you're emotionally healthy. You're relationally healthy. You're physically healthy and you're mentally healthy. And I, when we talk about the characteristics of health in the church, you might not struggle with lust or greed, but your physical health is off. And I know God is speaking to some of us about this, that our physical health, we have to offer this body as a living sacrifice. And, and this is a hard one to talk about because there's so much shame around this. But we're going to break the shame. And we're going to be healthy individuals and a healthy community. I would love to see mental illness uh, talked more about because so many of us are struggling, especially after the last two years, with mental illness, anxiety, depression, other things, um, lack of sleep. We're not sleeping. We're, we're not eating. Health. There's so many things that are going on in our church. And we, we have to recognize that the enemy's at work, but also cultural is teaching us so much. And for us to stand as a redemptive presence in the world, health is going to be one of those ways. I heard it said that success in the kingdom is healthy relationships. In a world divided, imagine what it would look like to have differing opinions for our next election cycle, where you could have left and right, adamant about what they believe, but living in healthy relationships, not demonizing each other. Well, that, that, would be a real, that would be a resurrection of the dead, actually. It's happened here. I have testimony of friends in our church that differing opinions, and they were so humble through the process. They, br- they would bring communion to gatherings where they would de- debate these things, and there was nothing but love. And Christ, Christ was held in high honor because of that unity. We need to be examples of that. The last thing is holy, and we've been talking about this. Um, A.W. Tozer, I said this last week, and I didn't realize how powerful it was because all of you groaned when I said it. He said, Every man is as holy as he really wants to be. I believe God's calling us to holiness. And throughout history, when God moves, um, he he begins to set things right in the people of God. During the Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, one of the leaders of the Welsh Revival, began to do this simple thing to help um, people understand what was going on and how do you commit to to this thing he's doing. And he gave, this this is their way of, of kind of ushering in revival, the first thing he said is, we, as the, this is to the church. This wasn't to outsiders. How do you sustain what God's doing in revival? The first thing he says, we must confess before God every sin in our past life that has not been confessed. Number two, we must remove anything that is doubtful in our lives. Doubtful in our lives. I could teach on this, these four points. I'm not going to. The third is total surrender. We must say and do all that the Spirit tells us. And the last thing is we make a public confession of Christ. This, these, this, like if you boil down the Welsh revival, which some say helped ignite the Pentecostal renewal that, or the revival that took place, these are the four things. It was a confession. It, it seems so, I mean, when I'm reading about the Welsh revival, you know what happened? It was so insane. He would just go, he would, Evan Roberts would walk into like factories and he just walk, and then people would start conf- falling to their knees and confessing what they've done. And the, they would shut down the factories. He would preach the gospel. People would be healed, and everyone would be saved. And then they would do gatherings, and they would, people would just gather. Like, it would be like Tuesday, and they would go to churches. There's no planned meeting. They just show up, packed house, and they begin to worship. And if Evan Roberts was planned to be there, and he felt that people were there to hear him preach, he would not preach. 
He would wait. Because he, he, would say, he would say, I never want to share, I would never want to take the glory away from God. They would worship for four hours. And then maybe he would get up. Maybe. And he, wouldn't, he wasn't a great preacher. He would do basic things and the spirit of God would move. And that, you can't make that happen. But it wasn't done because it was organized. It was done because it was a move of God. People couldn't help but, but say the things. And if you study what happened in Wales, like we're talking schools were created, hospitals were funded, libraries were funded, alcoholism was, killed, was done in one year. Um, pubs were emptied out. At one point on New Year's Eve, when the Welsh, Welsh revival was happening, there was not one arrest or one incident for uh, civil or uh, un- unrest in public because everyone was saved. It was insane. Pit ponies, what they used in the mines, uh, couldn't understand what the people were saying because they stopped cussing at the pit pony, ponies. We're talking about renewal of, of cosmos because of the presence of God. Here's what I want to end with. He, Charles Finney said, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It's giving up one's will to God in deep humility. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. This is what his word says. James 5.16, this isn't up, but it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I just want to say some of us are waiting for healing or move of God in our life, but we don't realize that we have, we're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness. I don't think sin in our life keeps us from experiencing healing. I don't, I have, that's a bad theology. I've seen that in the Pentecost, like old Pentecostal church. But I do believe um, I have seen how God heals people in prayer through forgiveness. Uh, in, in prayers, we've had testimonies of this where there's physical ailments on people and as we're praying for that, there's a word of knowledge about an issue that is related to their past and we ask that person to ask God to help them forgive the person who caused it and as soon as they do, they experience healing. I think this is what he's getting at in this context. That some of us don't recognize the, the ways we've kept ourselves from God moving in our life because of what we're holding on. Are you guys good? Man, it's so late, 11.46. Here's what I want to do. How... How do we repent? I love you. How do we repent and confess our sins? I went and preached at Rock Harbor, and they're like, you got 30 minutes. I was like, what? That's my warm-up. Like, you're killing me. <clears throat> All right, I want you to write this down. I wanted to get to this. Here's what you're going to do. I want to teach you how to repent and confess sins. Now, if you're new, you're like, gosh, fire and brimstone, Sinners in the hand of an angry God. Look, look at Darren Rounds. He's like, Jonathan Edwards. No, 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 no. This is something God's putting inside of me right now. And I don't want you to think that this is for works of righteousness or God needs you to do this. This is about something new he's doing. And it's very old. But I realize in our, in our state of church, we don't know how to confess. We don't know how to acknowledge. So here's what I wrote down. Number one, how do we repent and confess our sins? Number one, acknowledge what you've done recognize it as sin, and take ownership for it. So you're going to go to the Lord today, and you're going to say, Lord, is there anything that I've done that's sin? And you're going to let, his, let him lead you into a space. God, the Spirit will guide you there. And you're going to write down and acknowledge it. And I don't want you to just say, oh, cool, I acknowledge it. I want you to see it as sin. 
I want you to see it as part of that old self that's been crucified. See it as something that God has dealt with and confess it. Then confess it to God first. Bring your sins to Jesus first. Then, so this is so important because sometimes we have conflict in our marriage. Does anyone have conflict in our marriage? Raise your hand if you're married. And we, we try to resolve conflict. But some of those conflict crosses a line that moves into sin. Does anyone want to confess that? I'll, I'll be the first to go. I see your hand in the back. I see you. Um, we need to not go to our spouse first. We need to go to God first. Because anytime we diminish the image of God in another person, through lying, through gossip, through anger, inappropriate anger, um, it's, first a, it's a sin first to God towards his beloved. So we, we bring our sin to Jesus and we confess it to him. And then you want to confess your sins to covenant community. We do not have a good practice of confession in the Protestant church. Catholic church, amazing. You go to a booth, go to a priest, not really looking at you. You, you bring a list of your, your sins and he, he says, all right, you're forgiven. Do these things in response. Look, I think we need to have a regular space in our life to confess our sins in this season. Look, there's going to be a season where that's not going to be a priority. In this season right now, this is what I'm inviting you into. Confess your sins. Covenant community. These are men and women in your life that you have given permission to speak into your life who won't take your sin and think less of you. They won't take your sin and gossip to someone else. They're going to hear it. And you know, if you receive someone's sin, you know what you say? You're forgiven. Thank you for sharing this. Go in grace and peace. All right, good. Third, ask God for forgiveness. So when you sin, you acknowledge it. You say, God, would you forgive me? And he, of course, he's lavishing. He's already forgiven you. So then you say, thank God for his forgiveness. And then you open up your life and you receive grace. And then what I do is I ask the Holy Spirit to fill the space in my life where I've sinned. This is just a strategy. I don't know if it's biblical. I'm just telling you what I do. When there's things in my life that I'm now emptying out to God, I say, God, would you fill that space in my life? My mind, my heart, my body. And if necessary, make amends. So some of you have sinned against other people in this room. You've held on to bitterness and anger. You've said things that have caused other people to think less of the person you've talked about behind their back. And you need to go to that person and say, I have dishonored you. I have sinned against God and you. Will you forgive me? This is how community is going to form. This is how unity is going to be created. Now, let me just say this. Sometimes you don't need to make amends. Sometimes the people didn't know, and uh, you need to go to the people you talk to. Um, but uh, like, for example, what tends, to happen in, in, um, uh, what tends to happen to me is people get mad at me. And they think all sorts of things about me I don't know. And then they come to me and like, hey, I forgave you. And I'm like, for what? <laughs> like, hey, but we do that. We don't know. So there's grace. But hey, so go to, go to the person if it's necessary. Sometimes what's necessary is you just need to release them to Jesus. Are you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to be holy as, uh, uh, because you are holy. I want you to confess your sins so that you can be healed. And I want you to repent. Is this, I think it's good. So let's stand up. Let's end our time. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.